Hi, I'm Jen Naughton, and this is Bookish Society Secrets. In case you stumbled upon us, here's the sitch. We give you the inside dish, spoilers included, about the latest and greatest new books for kids and teens. Because I live by the mantra, so many books, so little time, I'm using this corner of the internet to boost authors and their stories. All right. Hey, everyone. Today, I'm chatting with Ursula Marie Houston, the author of A Cat Story, which is available now. And it's our first graphic novel on the pod. Woot. Hey. Hi, Ursula. Want to tell us about your story? Hey, Jennifer. Sure. Okay. So this isn't a sad backstory. I promise. Okay. But um, between my undergraduate and my graduate degrees, my dad got really, really sick. He had multiple uh, cell lymphoma B and it was looking kind of dire. And oh, my family's really close. We're, we're really warm and we're really well connected. And so we were all in there in the oncologist's office and we asked, what can we do? What can we help do to help this person that we love get through this awful, awful time? And the oncologist said, well, plan a trip for when it gets better. Figure out some place that you can go all together that you can afford and that you can read about, that you can talk about. So it's like when this terrible chemotherapy process is done, you can all go on the trip. And so my dad was a social worker for most of his adult life. But before that, he was a physical anthropologist. And so we all grew up with learning about history of people and learning about different cultures and different places. And one of the places that he'd always wanted to go was Malta. Because Malta, which is a small country just south of Italy, is full of UNESCO World Heritage Sites from prehistory to like up into World War II and even beyond. Like if you scratch the surface of European history or even world history, Malta's under there somewhere. So that's where he wanted to go. Long story short, dad got better. Dad's actually still doing fine. And we went, yeah, real, real awesome. Um, And so he got better and we went on the trip and when you are afraid that you won't get to do something with somebody and then you get to do something with somebody, it's transcendent. And the way that I experience the world is by drawing. So if I want to remember something, I draw something related. I draw pretty much the way that other people play with their phones, although I do play with my phone sometimes. Do I always have a sketchbook? I am always drawing. And so on this trip, I drew everything that we saw. We stayed in a little hotel by the fishing docks and I got up early and I watched the cats going in and out and everything was suffused with beauty. And it just left such an enormous impression on me that it took me a couple days into the trip to realize that there were cats everywhere. (laughs) (laughs) And I love cats. I've always loved cats. We've always been a cat family and there were three different kinds of cats. And I started to chronicle them. There were cats that would come up to you and be like, Hey, so we just met, but scratch my head. What are you eating? Rub my belly. Would you like to take me home? Hi, I'm a cat. You're a person. This is how this goes. Cats that love people. Yes. And then there are cats that are like little shadows in the background, right? They're wild cats. They are out there having their adventures. They want nothing to do with us. And it's like watching squirrels in the United States. You just see a little crowd of cats running along in the background. And they're interesting too. And then there was a third kind of cat and they'd walk up to me or people in general, but since I'm the one 
making the notes. I was and, the one and you're a cat notes. person, and I think they I'm can a cat tell. person. They can, but they, but they. Here's the thing, though. They'd walk up, and they'd look at me, and they go, "Nah, that's not it," and they'd walk off. <laughs> and I'd find myself thinking, "Well, what are they looking for?" Because if it's not me, because clearly there's some sort of thought process, there's an analysis. Who is this and what are they doing? Nope, not it. I started wondering, okay, what are they looking for? And from that question led the character of Scylla, who is trying to find something that she wants, right? Scylla is the character asking the question. She's my little black and white cat. And so actually the characters of Scylla and Beto I had by the end of that trip in... December 2004. Wow, okay. <laughs> and I rewrote the story and worked on the story and put it out in several different forms. I did a version of it in graduate school. I did a version of it while I was working on my PhD. I did another version of it afterwards. And so more things kept sort of collecting onto this story and it kept getting bigger and more complex and building out. And I had self-published a couple of different versions of it okay. um, because if you're a comic artist, it's really easy to self-publish, right? You just photocopy something, you fold it, you staple it. Um, and then, <laughs> like a zine. <laughs> exactly. Well, it's very democratic. Yeah. That's the wonderful thing about comics is that anybody can do it. If you are seven and you draw a four-page comic and you photocopy it and you give it to somebody else, you're as real a comic artist as I am. The the bar is so low that if you can make something and mechanically reproduce it and give it to somebody else and put it on the web, you're you're a real comic artist. There's really, that strata is non-existent. So I self-published a couple different versions of it and I started showing it to publishers and I got an awful lot of, this is really wild and interesting and strange, but we can't sell it. And it was like, oh, well, that's interesting so that I'd self-publish it again. Yeah. <laughs> and then I'd get, oh, this is really complex and interesting. And sometimes I'd get a beautiful, but we can't sell it because we don't know who it's for. And that was interesting, yeah. right? Because as I kept coming through it, and then I had to stop and think, well, who did I make this book for? And I'm like, oh, I made it for my dad. And he liked it. So that's successful. Yeah. And so finally I came out with a version of it and I started showing it to people again. And a friend of mine said, Ursula, why hasn't somebody else published this book? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. I, I keep showing it to people um, and, and it's not taking. And he said, well, do you have an agent? And I said, no, I don't have an agent. And he said, well, here, let me show it to my agent. And so he showed it to his agent, who then became my agent, who looked at it and said, Ursula, this is a children's book. And I was like, really? Uh. And she said, yes. And I thought, how wonderful. How absolutely wonderful. And that makes sense because it's a book that I had made for my dad. But the structure of it is very watership down, tail Mm -hmm. chaser song. There's, There's a lot of sort of children's literature ambiance of it because a lot of those books are the books that I love and and still love so with that in mind it got revised again and it got shown to a whole bunch of editors who all said this is beautiful but we can't sell it oh my gosh still (laughs) oh my gosh yes 38 times this book was rejected oh not that I keep track or anything I hear that Hemingway yeah no I hear that Hemingway uh 
wallpapered his downstairs bathroom with rejection letters so he could read them in an appropriate setting. And I'm not <laughs> quite to that level, but A Wrinkle in Time was rejected 36 times. So after it got rejected 37 times, I was thinking to myself, oh, great. Got a, got a new record. But then finally, uh, my wonderful agent showed it to a gentleman who would become my fabulous editor who read it and said, this is a good book. And I was like, okay, it's beautiful, but you can't sell it. And he said, I think I can sell it. And I went, what? <laughs> a new answer. Oh, really? And he said, yes, but you know all those strange bits? And I was like, the art history bits? the bits where they, they walk through the panel and all, all the bits that I love that everybody else in the world has told me to take out. Yeah. And he goes, yeah, those bits. And I go, yeah. And he says, it needs more of those. And I was like, oh, can do. <laughs> thank you. So to my soul, this was wonderful. And to my hands, this was another year's worth of work because I got to draw 120 new pages. Oh, but it wow. was great. It was so great because it was, I, I realized that I was going to be making this story and it would be able to fully inhabit the space that I, I wanted it to make. So that's, then it, it came out and I'm, I'm working on the next book, which is not a sequel, but it's the next book. So it's this sort of very long process. It came out in 2020. It was roughly 15 years from conception to publication. Wow. That's yeah. That's what I keep hearing. It's like that it just takes so, so long. Well, I, I think it does, but it's different for everybody. I'm afraid that I might not be a super satisfying podcast guest because you're going to ask me questions and I'm going to say, well, it depends on what you want to do. To pretty oh, much that's everything. what I love. That's what I love. Oh, I, good. Then we'll I don't, fun. Yeah, I don't want yes and no. Um, what did you leave out then? So you got to add everything. Did you have to take anything away? Yes. Oh, oh, there's always things that have been taken away. There was maybe enough. So the, the story is there are these two cats and Scylla is the questioner. And she thinks that the good life can be found with people, specifically a mythical garden that is full of people who are kind to cats. And so she wants to go find this thing. And her friend Beto is the cynic and he is the Greek chorus. He is like, do we really want to? Life is fine. Do we really? You're going this way. I'll go with you. Because mm -hmm. it's true. It's a, it's a story about friendship and loyalty and, and what does belief look like? And what does trust look like? And what happens when you're growing up and you're looking at things from different angles? Right. Right. So right. things that got left out, um, there's several teachers through the book. There's Alaya, who is the cat who lives in the flower market. And she is a character who sees the world through beauty. She's an ethical hedonist. She's like, have a good time as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Okay. Why are you searching when, if you look around, things are pretty good? And I had about five more pages with Alaya. Okay. And then the next teacher is Paolo, and he lives in St. John's Co-Cathedral. And he says, look at the breadth of history and ask questions and look closer. Look closer, but discover for yourself. I'm not going to tell you the answers. And there were about five pages with him that got okay. cut out. And then ah. there's the next teacher, okay. Radagunda the Poodle, who I love. Yeah, I me love. too. She's a very Zen poodle. Well, she's not actually a Zen poodle because dogs can't really be practitioners of Zen, but she gets really, <laughs> really close. <laughs> yeah, we have to be specific about that. <laughs> 
It's true. It's true. But she's the only one that didn't have anything taken out. Okay. She actually had about 10 pages put in to her because originally their conversation was very short. So I had to keep spreading that um, out into a larger. Bulking that up. Yeah. 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 And then the ending changed about seven times or the ending was always the same, but the format changed. And so I would draw 20 pages of ending and send it to my editor. And he goes, I don't think that's right. And I go, okay, okay. And then I take it back and I draw it again. I send it back and he goes, this bit's working, that bit's not working. So there's always little bits and pieces that get taken out. There's not a a chapter or a complete arc that got taken out, but I'd be really excited about something and put it in and he'd go, "Eh." and because I trusted him and because he's, I, I still trust him. He's a fabulous editor. He, it made the book better. Yeah. I guess this would apply more to when you are, re- you know, when you're revising, when you're sending things back and forth to the editor, what does a day look like for you? Like, what is there, are there distractions? Are there, do you have set hours where you're like, I am going to draw first and I'm going to write second. I mean, how does it work? So it all depends on what stage of the writing or drawing or authoring whatever that I'm in. Um, So the way that I make books is I have a concept and then I will sit down and draw my way through the book. And so I thumbnail out each page. I make small sketches for each page as the story sort of comes to me. And then I take that and then I'll send that to the editor. And so that usually takes anywhere from three to nine months this thumbnailing process. Okay. Uh, and then they send it back with notes and then I will go through and refine that again um, until the drawings look relatively right. And then the last thing that plops into place is the exact dialogue. Cause that's the hardest thing for me. So I basically have sort of a silent movie where I know what the characters are wanting to talk about, but I don't know exactly what they want to say in each panel. So I will then rough out dialogue and then I sit down with my brother who is an actor and a writer and we will talk back and forth the characters until it sounds like it's in their voices. Okay. Because it's all dialogue with comics and it's got to complement the art. So on an individual day, I am either sitting directly in my studio, listening to music without words, drawing for eight to 14 to 18 hours if I'm on a really good tear Mm -hmm. or I am going through notes from my editor going, okay, they say this on this page. So I'm going to go back in this and, or figuring out the dialogue. So it really depends on where I am in the book. As far as my daily structure goes, um, I get up very early, but that's not because I'm virtuous. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's because I have a six-year-old. Okay. So I get up, I get up before she does and have a cup of coffee and go for a walk. And then everybody sort of gets ready in the morning. And then roughly between eight and five-ish, I am somewhere adjacent to my studio or the garden. So if I am drawing and I know what I need to be drawing, I am in the studio and I am drawing and I'm writing and I'm working. If I am not sure what needs to happen next, I have to be physically moving or else nothing happens. So I will be out puttering in the garden or going for a walk or digging stuff up or raking leaves, doing something physical while thinking through the process of what I'm writing. And then got my little pack of notepads in my pocket and I pull one out and I'm like, okay, this, this needs to happen at this scene or this needs to happen at this scene. So it really depends on where I am in the book. Gotcha. 
So yeah, I've you're the first graphic novel ah! person that I've talked to. You're trying and, to think of what to call me. I know. I was like, <laughs> nobody knows. Nobody no. knows. All right. So well, I let's talk about that. Let's talk about that. I will call myself a cartoonist. Okay. Because I both write and draw. Right. I am a person who makes cartoons, which are a crystalline amalgamation of drawings and words together. Right. It, it is it is a metamorphic art. Okay. It is two things squashed together. Cartoonist, one who writes and draws. I could also be called a graphic novelist because my primary output for sequential art is the graphic and literary format of graphic novels. But you got to think about graphic novels and comic books like squares and rectangles. Yeah, let's let's explain that. Awesome. So a graphic novel is always a comic book. A comic book or a comic is not always a graphic novel. Okay. Squares and rectangles. Yeah. And so someone that writes a graphic novel isn't always the artist that draws said graphic novel though, correct? Absolutely. Lots of people collaborate. Um, I tend to do the whole business because I like it. Yeah. (laughs) And I don't, I don't write without pictures and I don't draw without words. So while I'm not saying that a collaboration couldn't happen, my most happy productive studio time are when I'm working on my own stories. Okay. So then how would you explain to parents who think that every book for older kids, it's not every, every book that's not a picture book, right, is a comic book. And that they're somehow less than a book without pictures. What do you say to that? Because I I think there's just a vague suspicion there. Right. And so what I would first do is I would validate their concern. Insofar as there is a historical precedent for viewing comic books in the United States as something that is not just less than, but dangerous. Really? Oh, absolutely. So if you look at the history of American comic books, right? Right. The first comic books, floppy comic books, right? 32 pages with a stable were reproduced um, relatively unauthorized uh, newspaper comics. And so you would buy these at the newsstand and it would be 32 pages of Mud and Jet, Jeff from that year, or the Cats and Jammer Kids. And so they were these pulp Items And then because these were so cheap to print, soon Publisher and Concerns realized, oh, we could make our own stories and print them in this format that people really like. And so you had the origin of the modern comic book. And that's when we start to have things like Superman starting to pop up and we start to have Wonder Woman and Batman and sort of what we think of now as comic books are superheroes, right? But there were also war comics and horror comics and romance comics and funny animal comics and joke comics and absurdist comics and comics that were dramatic soap opera things for adults. And so you had these pulp comics that were all across the spectrum and they were being read by pretty much every section of the American populace until about in the 1950s, there was a guy named Frederick Wortham and Frederick Wortham 
wrote a book called The Seduction of the Innocent, which was all about how comic books were corrupting the morals of our nation's youth. And it was, oh no, Batman and Robin are gay and women, Wonder Woman. (laughs) If only. (laughs) I mean, I'm not judging, but Wonder Woman is, you know, introducing children to the concept of bondage with her magic lasso. And these horror comics are making it so that kids are now planning mass murders. And he was using the same kind of overblown language that you hear people talk about violent video games or rock music or heavy (laughs) metal music or the satanic panic, right? So you have these sort of scare quotes and it's to sell this book, The Seduction of the Innocent. And it went, it started having congressional hearings. It it went up in Canada to the parliamentary system to start in a system of oversights. And then it got to the congressional hearings here. And all of the publishers were like, oh no, we're going to be shut down. We're going to be shut down because there were comic book burnings in public squares and people were taking their kids long boxes of priceless comics. Now, if you've ever wondered, like, why are old comics so expensive? It's because so many of them were destroyed in the 50s and 60s by concerned parents who were like, these are morally leading my children down the path of the pool hall, right? It's the same language about every 20 years. There's a new moral panic. Right. Um, And so all these comic book publishers, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? They instituted uh, the Comics Code Authority, And this was a self-imposed set of rules and regulations to show that everything they were doing was moral. Okay. And good never won over evil. And comics were for kids. They were not for adults. And there was no vampirism or werewolfism or any kind of bad supernatural stuff. Nobody swore and nobody ever had a accidental flashing of skin or anything bad like that. And it was hundreds and hundreds of rules. And Because of those rules, comic books for adults weren't viable anymore. So whole sections of the comics publishing industry just sort of quietly closed and went away, leaving behind them this vague sense of an unsavoriness that's attached to comics. Now, in the 1960s, we have children becoming adults who have grown up with having their comic books taken away. And so it has this allure of the forbidden. And so you start to have the underground comics movement because comics, again, are democratic. Right. And if you can draw and fold and photocopy and hand to somebody else, you're a legitimate comic book artist. So we start having people like Trina Robbins and the infamous Robert Crumb and people like Roberta Gregory, um, like all making comics that are talking about the world that they're in. Because when artists make art, it tastes like their environment. It tastes like the art that they've consumed. It tastes like who they are and what they're from. And so these were comics about drugs and sex and rock and roll. And then all the people who were responsible for burning the comics before said, I told you so. I told you so. I've been saying this for years. (laughs) Oh my gosh, this is what it is. It's not necessarily, but it was this small section of it. But from that underground movement came people like Art Spiegelman, who did Mouse, which won a Pulitzer Prize, right? It is a, a comic memoir and fictionalization of his father's story going through Auschwitz. Right. And it's this tremendously moving and really hard to read black and white comic that should not be read 
by young children because it is graphic and horrific, but so, so important. And then you have um, people who were drawing superhero comics in the 40s and 50s, now while sort of retiring and starting to work on their own projects. So we have Will Eisner, who after decades of drawing the spirit, does a contract with God. And he starts, which is a fictionalized memoir of growing up in Brooklyn. Okay. And as, as a young Jewish boy who wants to become an artist. And so you have these sort of building blocks of the graphic novel. Art Spiegelman famously says that he has been called the father of the graphic novel, but he would like a paternity test. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> because this book length comic, right? Mm-hmm has come up from all different cultural groups. Like everybody who makes books, makes comics and book length comics are there and have always been there, but they've reached a new level of cultural saturation, especially with kids because librarians who are really smart and brilliant people know what kids are reading, not Mm -hmm. necessarily checking out, but reading. So librarians will look and see like, Oh wow, there's a pile of, smile that like has just been left here right they're just sort of built up and they're read in one sitting and then put back and then the librarians are like oh this is what the kids are reading let's make sure that we get more of these things so for parents who are worried that comics are trash literature you're not the first people to worry about it but also comics are not a genre It is not a type of book. It is a format. Think of comics like poetry. Okay. Where there is ridiculous poetry. A peanut sat on a railroad track. His heart was all a flutter. Around the bend came number 10, toot toot peanut butter. Wild, right? Right. But then there's also comics that have, uh, not comics, there's also poetry that has won the Newberry. So if you think of a visit to William Blake's Inn, Blake gave silver shoes to the rabbit and golden gloves to the cat and emerald boots to the tiger in me and boots of iron to the rat. It's the same basic structure, right? Right. A, B, A, B, A, B. But one is fast and funny and dog man. And the other is rich and deep and ghosts by Raina Telgemer or um, Anya's ghost by Vera Brogsel, right? Things that are, are really deep and rich. And so for the parent who is worried, read the comic books first. Yeah, they're the a quick read. <laughs> they're a quick read. It's one of the wonderful things about it. Yeah. Go to the library um, or write your librarian. If you're in a place where the libraries aren't open yet out of yeah. safety, write your local children's librarian and say, hey, can you tell me five middle grade, if your kid is middle grade or five YA or five young reader comics that have literary merit? You can also step over that if uh, librarians, you're, you're worried about bothering them because they're lovely people and they've got a lot to do. And you can just go look at the Yelsa list, right? Right. You can go look at the American Library Association, uh, best graphic novels of the year list, and then just read them. If you are worried and your children loves comics, read them before you pass judgment because some are junk and some junk is good. Right. It, it's good to have things that are not just rich, wonderful morsels. It's yeah, good to have a broad reading spectrum. It's like a um, a balanced diet, you know? Yeah. You got to have some trash to make everything else move through. 
Trash exactly. is fabulous. Dogman exactly. is a hoot. Exactly. Gosh, you are a wealth of information. So now, I mean, I'm learning so much because I've been calling them a genre because I didn't know. Well, and they are shelved as a genre because it makes sense because a yeah. child who is reading graphic novels is more likely to pick up a graphic novel. So if you like, you got a bunch of dogmen and then you slip in Bone Sharps and Thunder Lizards drawn mm-hmm. by John Odiviani and it's a nonfiction story about dinosaur hunters. That same kid is going to love those two books and it's, it's sneaky to pull yeah. out. <laughs> yeah, it is. Well, and it's as a, as a homeschooling parent, I can tell you that anything that you can strew around will get picked up, you know? It's like, if it's just laying there. Casually. Casually, you know? Then it's like, oh, oh, you're reading that? Oh, I guess that's okay, you know? (laughs) Yeah, my brother and I grew up in a house where we had books, not money, because both of our parents were academics. So we were allowed to read anything. And there there was no restriction that I understood as a child. We were allowed to ask questions about anything. Sure. And so we'd read something, we'd go, all right. I remember trying to get through the brothers Karamazov at eight or nine because it was there. And yeah. Like, this is a big book. I'm going to read this big book. And then be like, mom, which one's Alexi? And she's like, okay, <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's try to figure this out. Right. So, th- so there wasn't a judgment and we fit the, figure that out as an adult. I, I mentioned that to my mom and she's like, yeah, we had a lot of stuff on books you couldn't reach because you weren't oh. really ready to talk about that yet. So they'd, they'd seed stuff down. Yeah. Um, as I grew up, but yeah, kids will pick things up. Yeah. I remember reading Jaws when I was 10 and that was a colossal mistake. Ah! (laughs) I did not like the ocean for a long time and no one really understood why. (laughs) (laughs) Did you grow up near large bodies of water or? No, actually at that point I lived in Arizona. So it seemed like this very foreign, you know, place that like, and then when we eventually, you know, went to California, I was like, uh, no. Oh. <laughs> not going in the water. So it was the unimagined unknown. Yeah. Cause I was like, first of all, how is this water so big? And, you know, second of all, there's clearly sharks right there. Right. Like, I mean, and now we know that there are sharks right there and they don't actually bother humans that much, but. No, more sharks are killed by people than people are killed by sharks. Exactly. Which is a problem. So what was your favorite childhood book? Oh, that is such a long list. Now, I the know. First, it, how the first one I can remember committing stretches of it to memory was A Tree Grows in Brooklyn. Okay. Um, and I loved that book so much that I started memorizing chapters to myself so I could read them in my head at night when I couldn't fall asleep. Oh, that's so Fahrenheit 451 of you. I know. I re- <laughs> and here's the thing. I read Fahrenheit. Fahrenheit 451, yeah. Fahrenheit 451, sorry, Ray Bradbury. Yes. Um, I I read that one in, I think, fourth grade. It was part of the class reading list. And I thought, I am on my way. I am on my way. And so I started trying to memorize other things as well, thinking I'm going to be very useful. Yes, Uh, you're like, I'm I'm going to be several books. (laughs) Right. I'm going to be there. It's going to be good. Um, But I liked books about people who were you, you saw the full expanse of their lives um i like I, a whole saga see i loved the multi-generational books i loved like following a family mm, through time i only started digging that when i was older i think 
what I'm trying to articulate here, and it's tricky, is that I like books that show how a person is living in the okay. full expanse of how they're living. So the book, The Golden Goblet by Eloise Jarvis mm-hmm. McGraw is one of my favorites. Okay. Uh, it was a Newbery Honor book. I think it was written in the 50s or 60s. It's a, a really beautiful book. It holds up though. Oh, it's it, still good. Thankfully, it still holds up. There's a few descriptive turns of phrase that I think would be edited out now, yeah. um, but it's not offensive. It's just like, oh, maybe not that so much, but you can, it talks about how Ranifer sleeps what his mm-hmm. clothing looks like, what he does in the morning, what he eats for each meal, yeah. how he goes to sleep. And so it's a more immersive experience. And so you can sort of imagine yourself into that. And that's why I've always liked science fiction and fantasy, because when Ursula K. Le Guin, my namesake, uh, writes Earthsea, mm-hmm. you see the full lives of people, right? You see this world building coming through and it, it allows you to imagine what that world could be like. Those, those were the books that I, I really loved. So anything that gave the full experience of somebody and didn't just clip out, quote unquote, the most interesting parts. Yeah, I think that's what I love about historical fiction, um, especially for, you know, uh, books written for middle graders or even YA. It just, it really enhances what they might already know about history. Like they've probably got the dates and huge events, but then really learning how people live during that time is just so important. Well, so like if you're reading Catherine called Birdie. Yes. Which is a fabulous book. If you haven't read it, pause, go check it out go from the library, read this book. It's really, really wonderful. I remember reading it as a, as a young teenager when it came out. And then she talks about making pigments. She talks about painting on the wall and she talks about trying to make her own blue pigment out of the berries. And then the, she's painting it on the wall of a solarium. And I'm like, what's a solarium? And then I had to go to my, my big, you know, book of architecture. And I'm like, solarium, a small sunny room at the top of a manor house where people spent their time. And then I went back and I'm like, okay, now I have a concept of what this is. So like just these little bits and pieces that are dropped in. And and then you can sort of build that, like anything that I is visually described so that I could imagine it and draw it myself. Mm -hmm. Those are still the books I love. That makes sense. Well, and then having written a book called The Cat Story, have you read the Warriors series? I have read bits and pieces. I have had students who are really, really huge fans of the Warriors. And I I know that it is one of, it's like Redwall, right? Yes. You dip a toe into it and then the legends of it pour forward. Um, And so I've, I've read bits and pieces of it and it didn't grab me, but that doesn't mean that it's not a wonderful book series. Yeah. Yeah. My kids read it. We have, uh, I I was showing it online to book club kids and I held up the copy that we have and they were all like, oh, it's vintage. <laughs> I'm like, thanks for making me feel super old. <laughs> like my first edition's Warriors. Woo. <laughs> it was so funny. Um, gosh, what else? So what do you think about kids who only want to read graphic novels or comics, whatever, however we want to put it. I think eventually they'll run out. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, that's fair. Right. You will get to the point where you've read the same thing enough times that they will say, okay, well, what did I like about 
Dogman. Well, Dogman was funny. Yes. So what are other funny books? And then maybe it'll lead them to Bill Bryson or maybe it'll lead them to a, a different humorist to, who, who tickles them. Uh, yeah. They'll, they'll find something else. I think there is a great deal of value for allowing children to obsess about things, to allowing oh, children to dig themselves in and go, I want to find out everything about Antarctica. I am really, really into rocks right now. I am really into Pokemon. Boy, Pokemon just scratches that itch in a really good way because it goes on forever. And there's so, and there's many so details, much there. Right. Because when children are doing that developmentally, they're not doing it to bug you by reading stuff you don't like. They're really not. They are learning who they are and how to think. My dear friend, Stuart Clipper, who actually I have a photograph of his in the book. He calls himself bipolar because he's been to both the North and the South Pole. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Funny. <laughs> it is, it is a good joke. It's a good joke. It is a good joke. Uh, and he is a landscape photographer. And he has been all over the world and he's most famous for his photographs of Antarctica. And he famous, he says, and he, he says it very often that everything he is famous for as an adult are things that he was obsessed about when he was 11. He liked cameras. He liked Antarctica. He liked animals. He liked mountains. He liked old cars. Right. And these yeah. are things that he photographs and with the full expanse of his matured adult intellect he is able to make beautiful what entranced him as an 11 year old so if your 11 year old is reading nothing but comics there's something about that that is scratching an itch in that kid's brain yeah so yeah that's push, true push some paper near him push a pencil near him ask him what their comics would look like ask them to like, okay, you don't want to make your own characters, but draw these characters, like make some little kid fan art, like have a good time, roll around in this because their brains are developing and building things. And that is, that is a time to support and enhance, not to correct. Or at least that's, that's my feeling on it. Um, yeah. like, like Stuart, much of what I do as an adult is informed by the things that I loved as a child. I loved history. I loved costumes. I loved what people ate. Um, I loved animals. I loved drawing. I obsessively drew. I loved stories so much that when I uh, started to go to college, it was first to be a stage manager because the experience of sitting in a theater immersed in a story was miraculous. And so I was going to college and taking stage managing classes. And then I realized actors are messing this up for me. <laughs> darn people <laughs> well they didn't stand in the right place 100 percent of the time yeah and they didn't always say the right thing and i love actors as human beings my brother is one many of my friends are one but working with them and trying to get them to see my vision they didn't do but if i drew people they stayed where i put them good point <laughs> so that same immersive experience that i loved from reading stories and going to plays everything from like eight to 13 that like, Ooh, what is, what is this story? And how do you put yourself in the middle of it is what I do for a living now. So yeah. that's what I say to the parents who are worried that their kids aren't reading real books. Your kids are getting something out of that. Yes. Figure I, out what it is and feed that. Yeah. I couldn't agree more. That's a very, very good answer. Thank you. 
I like it. Might even steal some of it for a quote. Ah! We'll please see. do, please do. <laughs> I mean, well, I mean it sincerely. I think there is a lot of moral panic and hysteria, which I don't like the word hysteria, but it hasn't been kind of fits. one yet. Yeah. I, as in it's something fake and yes. real that gets put on a group of people. So yeah, okay, we'll go with that. But like the, this moral panic of our children are not receiving quality stuff. And Children don't know how to self-regulate. They are children. Right. All right. You put a child in front of 13 Brussels sprouts and a sour ball, and that sour ball is gone like that, unless you are the one out of 100 kids who would prefer a Brussels sprout, in which case more power to you. But that doesn't mean that that child is not capable of understanding what is good if eventually there's enough things out. Like kids don't self-regulate. So we're afraid of screens. We're afraid of too many comic books. And we put everything that we are afraid of in one big ball and say, okay, well, kids only need to eat this certain kind of food or kids only need to read these certain kinds of books. Right. And there needs to be a space where kids can make choices because if kids have no place in their world, their imaginary world, their physical world, their emotional world, where they can decide what they like, they get to college and they make choices. As somebody who has taught freshmen, certainly not all of my students, but there were students who were not allowed to make choices about any of the media that they consumed or any of the screen time that they enjoyed or any of their food. And they'd be the ones who had to be shaken awake at 2.30 in the afternoon by (laughs) their roommates because they couldn't stop playing video games, right? Yeah. So, allow kids some freedom of choice. And at the very least in the books they like. Well, and I feel like it, I don't know, it's probably like apocalyptic thinking, but at this stage, if your kids are wanting to read any books, just let them, let them read. There's too many kids that aren't reading at all. Right. So. And just like we said before, just leave stuff around. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. You'll never know what they'll be into. Kids are extraordinarily surprising. I remember as a child, I had an encyclopedia of mammals, which was like a 1960s textbook from my mom's biology classes. And I remember sitting there going, lemurs, huh, which led me into being fascinated by taxonomy at age nine. And I would sit and I would read lists of mammals and I go, this is the Latin name for this. Like, and it's not that I was never reading Animorphs or the Babysitter's Club books, which I love. I like, I was reading all these other things, but like there were these, just because things were around, things will stick in your kids' brains that you don't even know that they like. Right. Well, (laughs) and that's the thing too, is that they're not you, they're themselves. So you're saying kids are human beings. I am saying that. Turns out. Thoughts. Exactly. <gasps> it turns out we are all earthlings. <laughs> oh, our poor little planet. Yes, we are. Yes. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. To catch all the latest from me, you can follow me on Instagram at bookish underscore society and on Twitter at bookish society. And of course, on our website, thebookishsociety.com. Thanks again to Chris Rieger for his audio engineering magic. 